0: Hey there, welcome to another episode of Grand Rounds with Cascade. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Shaw. Today we're going to be talking about iron deficiency, iron insufficiency, what iron does for the body and why we need to have levels that are optimal rather than normal. I'll be bringing in a few special guests. Um, One is my colleague and friend, Dr. Mark Woodall. Uh, He's going to come in a little bit later in the segment and talk about the biochemistry and pathophysiology related to iron deficiency. And then towards the end, we're going to be speaking with Anissa Woodall, who's one of our nutritionists, and she's going to speak to us about how to improve iron with nutrition and the importance of absorption. So let's get started. One of the biggest complaints our patients come in with are complaints that are related to nutrient deficiencies or insufficiencies the most common deficiencies we see are related to vitamin d iron b12 folate zinc and iodine however iron is really the one nutrient that is a close second to vitamin d when it comes to nutrient deficiencies and it's really rarely assessed correctly and often missed when patients go in to their primary care doctor with common symptoms of iron deficiency. So I have a patient. I've been seeing her for a few years and she came to me originally um, right after she had been diagnosed with what's called hemiplegic migraines, which just refers to having migraines on one side of your head. So she came in uh, to see me on two different migraine medications that she was recently put on by her neurologist as well as a beta blocker in order to treat her symptoms She was told she was going to have her migraines forever. There was no cure. Uh, The problem is that she's 30 and she was newly married and she was having a hard time coming to grips with this diagnosis. Nobody wants to hear at the age of 30 that they're going to have headaches for the rest of their life. And so when I was getting her health history, she mentioned to me that her headaches were always worse or triggered by exercise or being out of breath. And she loved hiking Uh, hiked all the time. I mean you can't live in Pacific Northwest and not enjoy some of that Um, but she couldn't really hike anymore because she said about a hundred percent of the time that she would go on any kind of hike she would end up with a crushing migraine. Some other really interesting pertinents were that her period was really heavy and irregular so it was coming and going it would miss a month or two and then when it came it would be very very heavy and she was worried that it would be hard to get pregnant. Her and her husband wanted to start a family, so I always do thorough blood draws with my patients. We all do here uh, at Cascade, and looking at nutrient insufficiencies and deficiencies, nutrient levels rather in the very beginning is something that I've always done, because it really helps to set uh, uh, the groundwork for a strong foundation. And sure enough, you know her ferritin, her iron storage was really low. It was at you know twenty. Um, optimal is really between 80 and 90 and we'll talk a little bit more about that later on with Dr. Woodall about uh, where optimal levels are for women and men um, and I do think that that number can change a little bit uh, depending on the person but in general 80 to 90 is where I'm looking uh, for optimal and hers was at 20 so that was definitely in a place where she was going to be experiencing um, symptoms so this told me that she was severely iron insufficient um, I don't say deficient at this point because her red blood cells still looked normal. She didn't have so little iron that her red blood cells were starting to change. Um, but, you know, I think that the fact that her red blood cells looked normal is what was keeping uh, her primary care doctor from looking at her ferritin or her storage iron. Her hormones were also a bit unbalanced, which really explained her irregular cycles. And uh, furthermore, we discovered that she had an intestinal infection. When she was telling me a little bit about her digestive symptoms, we decided to do some small intestinal um, uh, bowel overgrowth uh, breath testing. And uh, we found that she had SIBO, um, which is a bacterial infection in her small intestine. So my diagnosis uh, was, at this point, um, insufficient iron, as well as small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and uh, hormone imbalance, which we call PCOS in this specific instance. And I realized until we got her periods under control and her small intestinal infection cleared up, we were going to have a really hard time getting her iron up orally because she was having issues with absorption. So here we have a patient with heavy outflow um, and plenty of inflow. She was eating lots of iron. Her dad, I think, owns a cattle company. Um, and he was keeping her stocked in beef, and she was eating plenty of iron. But because of her small intestinal infection, she wasn't absorbing it very well. So we had a few different layers that we needed to work on. And with her, it wasn't as simple as just giving her iron. So I asked her to get some iron infusions. I love iron infusions, and Dr. Woodall is going to talk a little bit more about that, too. Um, really love iron infusions because we're able to bypass the digestive tract completely and get it straight into the blood. And so patients will notice very quickly the benefits of iron infusions, whereby with oral iron, they may not. And I kind of think about like trying to improve someone's iron by giving them oral supplementation as sort of putting drops in a big bucket that needs to be filled. It's gonna take a really, really long time if we do it that way. And it's fine. I mean, some people I think do fine with oral um, iron, especially if they don't have digestive problems but for her this was the right way to go so I recommended you know with ferritin at about 20 if our goal is 80 to 90 I recommended that she have about four infusions and she actually told me that her second infusion when she went in to get it uh, she was having a really bad headache in this at the start of the infusion but 10 or 15 minutes into her iron infusion her headache completely went away so that was a really good sign that we were on the right track So we treated her small intestinal bacterial overgrowth to improve her absorption. We balanced her hormones and we did that in order to keep her periods regular and light. So now we've got her outflow controlled um, and we've got her inflow uh, more absorbed because we had this bacterial infection treated. And now she's able to keep her iron levels up really nicely. Um, We also learned interestingly that for her when she When her iron storage drops below 100, and you know, I told you 80 to 90 is really optimal, so for 100, for her, that's pretty high. But when her ferritin drops below 100, she really feels it. She starts to get mild headaches again. So for her specifically, for whatever reason, she needs to have her iron at a much higher place. It's very important that we always use the um, philosophy of naturopathic medicine when we talk about these numbers, and the importance of the difference between normal and optimal. Everyone is an individual, and so we can't just be chasing numbers around. We have to really pay attention to how people are feeling as it relates to the numbers that we see. So let's do some definitions here so that we are all on the same page. Based on this case study, we can use some of this case study information to refer to some different points we're going to make today on iron deficiency. So iron is one of the most important nutrients in the body and about 70% of your body's iron is found in your red blood cells and it's called hemoglobin and in your muscle cells it's called myoglobin. Hemoglobin is essential for transferring oxygen in your blood from your lungs to your tissues. Myoglobin is in the muscle cells and it accepts, stores, transports, and releases oxygen. About 6% of body iron is a component of certain proteins, is essential for respiration and energy metabolism, so most of you guys from science remember ATP production in the cell. We need iron in order to make ATP production productive. Iron is also a huge component of enzymes involved in the synthesis of collagen. So all of our connective tissue needs iron in order to form. This is why a lot of our patients with low iron come to us with achy joints, uh, achy muscles. And then some of our neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin also need iron in their production. So that's the reason why many of our patients with low or suboptimal iron have issues with depression and anxiety. And then we also need iron for proper immune function. So you can see that now with someone that has low iron they may present with a ton of very different symptoms that to the patient and maybe to a provider seem very unrelated they may have fatigue muscle twitching restless leg syndrome is a huge symptom of low iron for many people hair loss heavy periods muscle weakness windedness vision issues migraines depression, anxiety, but all of these symptoms, if you look at the common thread of these symptoms, can all be signs of low oxygenation, which is really what um, uh, iron is really doing, is delivering oxygen to your tissues. Iron is absorbed primarily in your small intestine from your diet, from intake, and then is delivered to tissues by way of transferrin. I like to think of transferrin as the iron car. 75% of this iron is delivered to hemoglobin in the blood and myoglobin, remember, in the muscles to deliver oxygen directly to your tissues. 10 to 20% is delivered to ferritin for storage. So ferritin is your storage iron. And then the rest is delivered to other biochemical processes that require it. There are so many biochemical processes in our body that need iron to function. So we understand now that since iron is absorbed in the small intestine, that absorption of iron needs to be adequate. Patients who have issues with absorption such as small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or low stomach enzymes or low hydrochloric acid, uh, which often is contributed to by beta acid blockers um, or medications that are given to people for acid reflux, also we see issues like this in patients that have had bariatric surgery or inflammatory bowel disease all of those patients are going to have issues with absorption and their iron needs to be screened for so 10 to 20 percent of iron goes to ferritin storage iron and this is the the number that we were looking at in my case study with my patient whose ferritin again was at 20. so Ferritin is your storage iron. I like the analogy of food in the fridge versus food on the table. So ferritin is like food in the fridge. You're going to feed people from your refrigerator until it's totally empty. But as the food in your refrigerator starts to thin out, the people around the table are starting to get hungry. All you may have is mustard and a slice of bread, and they have to share it between them. So your body's sensation of its available iron is really much more tied to that storage iron or your ferritin level. Your iron actually drops in stages. So if your serum ferritin falls below 30 micrograms per liter, then your iron stores are depleted, and we call that stage one iron depletion. At serum ferritin levels less than 20 micrograms per liter, the tissues and cells are not receiving the iron they need to function correctly. This is stage two or latent iron deficiency. So with our patient, again, our case study, she had ferritin at 20. So at this point, her tissues and cells are not receiving the iron they need to function correctly. And therefore her tissues are really experiencing hypoxygenation. They're not getting enough oxygen to function. This is definitely a huge reason also why uh, she was feeling a lot of fatigue. So she was getting headaches and fatigue together. The final and most severe stage of iron deficiency is just straight up anemia. At this stage, the ferritin iron storage is so low that your red blood cells can no longer carry adequate amounts of oxygen. They start to get very, very small. We call this microcytic anemia. And this at this point patients usually feel just severe extreme weakness a lot of my patients at this point will come in with just pale skin and really dark circles under their eyes symptoms start to change and become more severe as the body moves through these iron depletion stages but your iron your body's iron storage is not always just reflective of depletion sometimes seemingly enough ferritin is a bad sign. And so this is because iron can form free radicals and can cause increased inflammation or it can cause an exacerbation of infection or inflammation that's already present. So if a little is good, a whole lot is not always better. Um, And when there's an invader in the body that results in an infection or inflammation, Your body is really smart. It stores the iron away into ferritin. It puts the iron in the fridge so that the invader does not have the iron to eat and to feed it. All things need iron to survive, including virus and bacteria. So your body in essence is trying to starve that invader by hiding away all that available iron. So at this point, if someone looks at your ferritin, it may look very high, but all of that iron that's in storage does not reflect that it's also bioavailable and you may be having symptoms of very low iron at the same time. Your body is so smart, and it's really good at deciding what gets what, and is constantly trying to maintain this homeostasis, trying to keep the body in balance, and it shunts iron to the most critical parts of biochemistry. So if you only have a little bit of iron to use, your body knows what needs the iron the most, and it's, it sends the iron to the places that you need to keep you alive and functioning which is fabulous, but other aspects of the body end up not getting enough of this iron. This is actually called triage theory. And this is a really good time to bring in Dr. Mark Woodall because he's really good at explaining these things. So Dr. Mark Woodall um, earned a bachelor's degree in exercise and nutrition at Virginia Tech. Um, He followed that with a master's degree in exercise physiology at Appalachian State University. And then he went on to become an naturopathic doctor after completing the doctorate program at Bastyr University. All of us here at Cascade are Bastyrians. Dr. Woodall was uh, also an intercollegiate triathlete specializing in cycling, and he remains an avid cyclist, also a weightlifter and hiker. And he's a father. He's got a two-and-a-half-year-old little boy, and he is married to Anissa Woodall, who's one of our nutritionists here at Cascade. Dr. Woodall's medical practice emphasizes um, patients that have uh, or are dealing with a lot of anxiety and depression. He also works a lot with autoimmunity, rheumatology, and primary care. Um, Dr. Woodall believes in a holistic approach to healthcare, care, and we're really lucky to have him here on our team. He's been with us here at Cascade since really the beginning um, and is really an important part of our family here. So Dr. Woodall, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm hoping you can explain triage theory um, to our uh, listeners a little bit better.
1: So with triage theory, um, vitamin K is a really good example. Vitamin K1 helps our body clot our blood. Mm -hmm. And our body's always basically saying, you need to survive in the moment. And so if you get cut, you need to be able to clot your blood so that you don't bleed out and it doesn't really think long term and say oh you know like when you're 70 and your bones and you're losing calcium from them like hold on to that Mm -hmm. and so that's where k2 comes Mm -hmm. but you have to have enough k1 before you make k2 unless you're getting k2 in the diet which is hard or you're supplementing with k2 Mm -hmm. and so with iron the body is always trying to keep the red blood cell production like viable and good
0: homeostasis exactly
1: at the cost of other parts of the you know um iron is not just used for our red blood cells Mm -hmm. it is used in so many different reactions and so we miss some of the other roles that iron plays if we just think somebody has a normal red blood cell count mm-hmm. a normal hemoglobin and hematocrit mm-hmm. and a normal what's called MCV
0: because mm-hmm. the body is prioritizing that iron and you may not you're not going to see all of the different places where it's being shunted or not
1: exactly unless
0: you you know are able to have x-ray vision into the cells yeah um okay so so explain explain to me what, what, what are some different symptoms that you've seen of someone... I mean, we talk about fatigue as being a big one. I think a lot of people are brought in for that reason. But explain to me some other symptoms that you've seen of patients that, that may have low iron um, in men and women um, and children, if you've seen them, and how they're different.
1: Yeah, so one of the um, symptoms you already elucidated was headaches, Right, Mm -hmm. and um, this is for several different reasons. Um, But iron is so important for energy Mm -hmm. because not only do our cells need oxygen to literally burn and make energy Mm -hmm. and utilize that energy, but in our mitochondria, where the powerhouses of our cells. Um, are making all of this energy for us, this ATP, so many parts in these what are called complexes, which is basically our cell's battery, they're using iron at their very center of the complexes of our mitochondria. So mm-hmm. we have all these little battery reactors that basically transfer our charge, mm-hmm. and we need iron to help them work. And so we can see fatigue, we can see headaches, we can see depression, Mm -hmm. um, we can see sleep disturbances. And some of those reasons are because not just with the energy and the mitochondrial function that iron possesses, but, you know, in the last five, ten years, people like Ben Lynch, other people have really brought forward the importance of folate Mm -hmm. and MTHFR and the use of folate and B12 to help support something called Mm SAMe. And the reason we care about SAMe is because it helps to make your serotonin, which Mm -hmm. makes your melatonin, helps make your dopamine, helps to clear these things out of our bodies. And in those reactions, SAMI is helping something called tetrahydrobiopterin, and this stuff gets super (laughs) complicated. But in that reaction, iron is there. Mm -hmm. So if you wanna take tyrosine or tryptophan, like these precursors that we use to help support serotonin and dopamine synthesis, iron is actually right in that pathway Mm -hmm. And it's so often we just think about B6 and 5-HTP, but if you don't have enough iron to drive that reaction, it doesn't go through as well as you think it does. Mm -hmm. And so um, that has then implications for such symptoms like restless legs. Mm -hmm. And so restless legs in standard medicine is treated by giving people dopaminergic drugs giving people dopamine to elevate that in their brain and yet there are clinical trials that show when you compare dopamine drugs to giving somebody iron you basically can get about the same improvement
0: oh yeah it's amazing what iron can do for restless leg syndrome i mean it's just transformative for sure
1: so here's Um, one of the other funny symptoms that um Maybe some people be like, "That is just weird," mm-hmm. and this is this thing called pica. Okay?
0: Oh yes, this and is weird. And
1: pica is like one of these things where you're eating weird stuff, and it could be ice
0: chips. That's a big one. Is ice crunching? They've got to crunch the ice. Yeah, yes. they've got to
1: crunch the ice. Some people can can eat lots of other like non-food products. They might be chewing on like a napkin or something.
0: Do you yeah. ask them those questions in the visit? Like, do you...
1: I typically don't, um, but it, it, it somehow finds its way Find up it's, in yeah, the conversation. Yeah, right, for sure. Yeah, I've definitely seen it mm-hmm. and heard people talk about it yeah. when I've um, worked with them in practice. And then another big one, too, is for all of our our, our young female athletes, mm-hmm. okay? Because for our young female athletes, we have kind of a, a two-hit... Um, left-right combo, and and what I mean by that is they've just started menstruation, so they're losing blood, Yeah. and then a lot of girls love to run, and so track season comes along, and the body's requirement for iron elevates now Mm -hmm. because you're literally working your body harder Mm. at a harder rate, and so we'll start to see things like exercise intolerance, Mm -hmm. and we'll see things like, um, exertional, um, shortness of breath. Mm -hmm. So when you're working out, it just feels way harder than it needs to be.
0: Yeah. You're not getting enough oxygen to your tissues. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, what's tricky with working with women is this in versus out, you know, so many of our female patients have just low, low iron and they've got heavy periods. I'm always surprised at how many, Uh, female patients don't realize how heavy their periods are until you start asking them how many pads or tampons a day on their heaviest day. Um, And so it's really tricky, especially if you think about increasing iron in women orally. Um, We can talk about the best forms to take orally, but I find that in a lot of my female patients, it's a lot more effective to do iron infusions just because, you know, you can't fill a bucket one drip at a time, especially if the faucet's on all the time, you know. Um, so what are your thoughts about iron infusions versus oral um, supplementation?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, there are so many things to think about here in terms of, like, um, cost, uh, where someone's at in their life, what their need is. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of insurance companies, unfortunately, um, are not covering iron infusions unless you have a um, deficient, unless you're anemic. And I guess we didn't do a job of describing, you might have a low ferritin, but we talked about how iron drops in stages. Yeah. Right. So that ferritin drops first, mm-hmm. and then as it gets worse, then the red blood cells start mm-hmm. dropping in their amounts of hemoglobin, hematocrit, and total red blood cell production. And so sometimes insurance won't pay for someone. And then another thing that can, um, conflates all of this is that different labs have different ranges yeah. depending on where you're at. Yeah. So true. I send a patient to get a blood work and her ferritin is super low. It's at, um, you know 10 and our range here depending is at least above 16 on our labs mm-hmm. but you go to a GI doctor because this patient's got GI symptoms mm-hmm. and they rerun it but because they deal with people who have blood loss all the time and
0: malabsorption issues. and
1: malabsorption issues their lower limit is seven <laughs> and yeah. so now their 10 is quote normal to them right and therefore they don't have a problem which is absolutely (laughs) ridiculous and this is why i wanted to have this conversation so i'm a huge proponent of getting iron up as fast as we can Mm -hmm. as safe as we can and so you know um we need the body requires iron and our patients especially our our younger females um but any woman between the ages of like I always say 15 to 50 because it flows nice with the Fs. But, (laughs) you know, this is a major problem because so many young women have depression. They have fatigue. And they think something is wrong with them. And this is just not true. Like, what's wrong with them is that they're iron deficient. Yeah. And then what happens, too, is we then also... um, have all this confusion around nutrition Mm -hmm. and what a person needs and other things like that. And so we start telling people that this and that, and it just becomes a very hard um, thing to get on top of. And so when the body needs iron, the body needs iron.
0: And the faster we can get it in, the better.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: So what would be your optimal ranges for, you know, a woman? Let's just start with that, with a woman. Where would you like to see this person's ferritin, as long as the rest of their iron panel looks like they're really low in ferritin?
1: Yeah, and so, you know, it's, it's so um, variable, and it just depends on, I think, sometimes the symptoms. So, I think that I usually say that if a woman is asymptomatic and is feeling like really good with life and we're looking at her ferritin, like I'm thinking that ferritin's probably going to sit somewhere between 45 and about 65, mm-hmm. with the saturation being definitely above 25 to 30%. Mm-hmm. If we have somebody who's symptomatic, um, whether that's hair loss, which is a symptom we didn't talk about, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really shooting to get that at least to 75, mm-hmm. and maybe as high as 100, just so that if they are someone who is menstruating, they've got um, some buffer. They've got some buffer yeah, here, so exactly. that we don't need to have them go through this process every time. And um, you know, I think that it can help them in so many different ways. And so my, my numbers kind of fluctuate based on where I think a person is at. Give you an example, my wife, we just got her ferritin checked because after three years, you know, she had a period tracker because she um, our son is two and a half years old and she hasn't had a period for like three years, right? And um, And therefore she's not losing any blood. She eats a pretty iron-rich diet and her ferritin sat at about 61 Mm -hmm. and her saturation was about 33 Mm -hmm. and so like for someone like that who's asymptomatic I don't feel I need to say oh well you know it's 61 like we need to get it higher than that like that's perfectly fine and and healthy but if we've got somebody who's down at seven um, I want to see what it looks like at 75 or 100.
0: Right, it's this idea of optimal versus normal, right, that we're constantly having to deal with. It's, you know, um, optimal may be between 40 and 60 um, for one person, but like my patient I was telling you with the migraines, she needs to sit above 100 to not have symptoms. And so it's important as providers, and this is something I think we all do a really good job of, is making sure that the numbers make sense for that person specifically, and that's really important. Totally. And so the other time I see, I, I don't know about you, but like my patients on testosterone, my male patients on testosterone they are bodybuilders, those guys usually need a much higher ferritin as well, I notice, for sure. Kind of like around, I don't know, what are your what are your goals for men? Because this is, I mean, men, talk about iron being misdiagnosed with patients in general. Men never have their ferritin looked at hardly ever get their iron looked at because from a traditional physician's mind, they're not bleeding every month. Their iron is probably fine, right? So what would be your goal with men?
1: Yeah. And so men, this really becomes a more important um, area to focus on as age um, increases. Uh So as you start going beyond 50, first off, our, our gut function is just we're not able to make those villi, which are those absorptive um, parts of our cells as well as we once did when we were 20. Right,
0: and our hydrochloric acid is dropping and yeah. we can't acidify minerals very well.
1: And so there are there are so many things that as guys age, we need to consider looking at their iron. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that for a guy, I really like it to sit at a minimum between 100 and 200. Mm-hmm. Um, our ranges here for guys are about 38 to 380. God, it's and such a so big range. It's huge. And so, you know, to give you an example, though, we, don't, we would hope in an ideal world we would know where that person sat. Mm-hmm. Right? And so if that person, when they were 30, sat up in the 300s, then I think they should be in the 300s. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they're sitting healthfully at a 200, then they sit at a 200. With the iron for the guys, um, it's usually we want to balance having too much and and having too much, so um, not having too much. And so um, iron can be problematic um, because it can also contribute to inflammation if it's too high. But most of the time, unless there are some genetic issues, Mm -hmm. our bodies are regulating that pretty well. Right,
0: right. And it is a huge cause of hair loss. I mean, in men too. A lot of men will come to me and say, "I think my, you know, male pattern baldness, or I think that my testosterone is changing, and it's just, it's just iron." Do you notice that hair loss is a big problem for both men and women in your practice? Yeah, I that's think that's related I, to iron specifically.
1: Absolutely, and for men, it can be in places where you maybe it's not on top of their head yeah right it right. could be hair from their legs mm-hmm. it could be you know when i was in school i was taught that that was a blood pressure symptom uh, you're yeah. losing hair from your legs probably blood pressure and well that can be true i'm i'm less convinced that that's the only cause of it mm-hmm. and so i think that there can be a lot of different reasons oh yeah
0: absolutely so really it's intake but it's also absorption it's you know how much am i absorbing how much iron and am i am i absorbing and there's a lot of factors to consider when someone comes in with low iron so getting their full iron panel is important but also understanding how they're how they're absorbing um their nutrients and how their <laughs> digestive you know system is working is really important as well um So I hear that we may start offering some IV therapy for iron here in the office. If someone was gonna come get their iron, um, uh, have an iron infusion, what does that process look like for that patient?
1: Yeah, so the first thing that they would do is we'd first, um, for new patients, we'd want an intake. We'd Mm -hmm. wanna meet them, understand what their symptom picture looks like and then get some labs on them. Kind of this whole iron panel that we've already talked about—the CBC, the red blood cells. Look at what those look like. Look at the ferritin. Look at the saturation levels. And then um, offer them, you know, the options based on where they're at. Does supplementation, you know, diet? And but if we're at somebody who, you know, if it's a it's a woman who has a really heavy period, this is a very hard um, process to overcome. Without infusions. Mm-hmm. And so um, that basically looks like after those labs are in, having that conversation and then moving forward with infusions. Usually it can take somewhere between three to five infusions that are spread out, usually once a week. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be done quicker, um, but generally like to just kind of space that out about once a week. Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, doing it that way bypasses the gut then we don't have all this constipation and digestive issues that many patients can have with iron supplementation orally.
1: And so, yeah, just one last thing that I'll, I'll, I'll say about that is when we talked about regulating our iron, our body has this protein called hepcidin. And hepcidin is the thing that inhibits our body's ability to absorb iron. And so if we're taking in iron supplementation, our body starts making a protein to try to limit how much we're absorbing. And so there are ways that we can work around that through oral supplementation, but this is something that has been published where if you actually look at a person's hepcidin levels before you decide to go with oral or IV treatment, the people who have high hepcidin levels about 80% of them will not respond to oral iron supplementation mm-hmm. and would be better served by not even going through that trial, not having the constipation associated mm-hmm. with that supplement and going for an iron IV.
0: Right, and if you've got SIBO or any kind of malabsorption, taking oral iron is not really gonna, really gonna do it.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, especially for our women who yeah. are, are having um,
0: you know, heavy periods. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Anything else about iron that you feel like we needed to discuss that you feel is important for people to know that we didn't think about it?
1: So a couple of things that I'll just um, come back to. So always just coming back to the diet, right? So people should realize that 8 milligrams for a man and 18 milligrams for a woman between about 19 to 50, I say 15 to 50, and that's just to show you how much iron – more iron a woman needs day in and day out compared to a man it's two and a half times what the man needs because of those heavy periods right and so that's a really really important thing to remember Um, some of our dietary sources that we're going to look towards are going to be things like our meats um, our um, spinach um, but molasses if you like molasses people can mix it into their oatmeal Mm -hmm. Um, But really, um, we didn't talk about this, and maybe at a different time, you know. Animal iron is absorbed differently than plant iron, and there are factors that influence those absorption. And so, um, if people eat meat in their diet, they're going to be more likely to be able to maintain healthy iron stores. For my vegetarians, yeah, it's better absorbable. Yeah. Um, And that's because it goes through a totally different transporter in our gut than a iron supplement or a plant form of iron. Mm -hmm. Um, And that makes the absorption about two and a half times more effective.
0: So for a vegan, all hope is not lost, we just have to be more creative is what you're saying. And iron infusions may even be more important with someone like that, especially a menstruating vegan.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Again, it goes back to where are they at with their symptoms, how heavy are their periods, and you know, we didn't even talk about how iron reduces the heaviness of periods. Oh, I know, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> so, you know, iron is just so important in so many facets of this. And so, um, you know, if you are a vegetarian or a vegan and you're feeling tired and you're feeling like your brain's not functioning correctly, you've got some brain fog, then I would highly recommend for you to come reach out to us, get your iron checked, and see where things go so that we can help support that process.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Mark.
1: It's great. Thank you for having me. You're welcome.
0: So when we're talking about iron and iron insufficiency, you know, we've talked about iron infusions, we've talked about taking oral iron supplementation, but I think overall the best way for any of us to get iron if possible is through optimal nutrition. And it's true that a lot of people can't absorb iron very well like we talked about before, they may have absorption issues, they may have had bariatric surgery, uh, inflammatory bowel disease or whatnot. Um, but if we're talking about optimal iron absorption, um, I think the best person to talk to about that would be Anissa Woodall. So she's one of our nutritionists here at Cascade. Um, she is a real food, holistic certified nutritionist and natural mama. She's got a two and a half year old with Dr. Woodall. Um, her life's purpose is to inspire and encourage women to live, eat and move with mindfulness, intention, and confidence. So she holds an MS degree in clinical nutrition and dietetics and a BS degree in nutrition and exercise science from Bastyr. Um, and she holds individual and group nutrition sessions with a special interest in women's health, fertility, and pregnancy at Cascade Integrative Medicine in Issaquah and also online through her website, which is anisawoodall.com. So Anissa, I, you know... Um, boy, a lot to talk about with iron. Um, in general, I'd just like to start with what your feelings are about um, iron absorption. And when you have a patient who comes in to see you that has, has issues with iron, what are, the, what are the things that you're going to be thinking about in that visit? So one of the first questions I ask when
2: talking about iron deficiency, especially if somebody was referred to me specifically for that reason, I definitely like to dig into the reasons why they might be deficient. And so, as you guys have discussed earlier with, with Dr. Woodall, um, there are multiple reasons, both physiologic as well as dietary, that might be contributing to iron deficiency. But one of the the directions that I often will go is asking about what foods might be included or omitted from someone's diet and what potential inhibitors or enhancers there might be of somebody's iron, iron absorption. So I'll go into that a little bit. The bioavailability of iron varies depending on the type of iron. So we have heme iron, which comes from animal foods, specifically, dark red meats uh
0: organ meats things like oysters and um sardines are and anchovies are high in iron too right mm, I
2: imagine or they no. might have some iron I don't know if they're if they're high in iron not high of course in, as some of these
0: other things you're mentioning
2: right and so um and so with with heme iron the main thing is that it it can only come from animals and it's more well-absorbed, so it's two to four times more bioavailable than plant-sourced iron. So plant-sourced iron is what we call non-heme, and it requires conversion from what's called the ferric state to the ferrous state, Um, and when it's in its ferric state, it's not actually absorbable, and it requires... Um, it requires that conversion specifically with acid. So ascorbic acid, vitamin C, which is found in foods, helps
0: to make the iron converted into, a, into an absorbable state. And that's what the hydrochloric acid is doing too, right? Exactly. So if someone has low hydrochloric acid, they're going to have a hard time with a vegan diet. Right. But also, someone with, that's on a vegan or vegetarian diet, their acid down-regulates, and then they have a really hard time absorbing or transfer going from ferric to ferrous. Yes, That's an interesting concept. I hadn't really thought about it that way.
2: Yeah, and so in order for the iron to be absorbed, it has to be absorbed through a transporter called DMT1. And this transporter can can be increased based on how uh, how deficient somebody's iron state is. So the lower somebody's, so, somebody's total body iron is, the more of these DMT1 transporters there's gonna be on the intestinal side of the, of the cell. Because the body is trying to get more. Exactly, Right. Yeah. yeah. And so one of the things we know about DMT1 is that it can be inhibited by certain other minerals, other divalent minerals, so things like calcium or zinc. Um, both of those minerals, when consumed in the same meal as plant-sourced iron, now, this isn't the case with animal, animal-sourced iron. The absorption is different. But when those minerals are consumed with plant-sourced iron, they can inhibit the absorption of iron. Well, lots of plants have calcium and zinc in them. Exactly. So <laughs> and so one of the examples that that's... I like to give is spinach, right? So many people, they think, okay, I'm vegetarian. I want to make sure that I'm getting enough iron, so I'm going to make sure that I get lots of spinach in my diet. And actually by volume, there's more calcium in spinach than there is iron. And so even if you sprinkle some lemon juice to, to enhance the, the conversion of that iron, you still are competing with the calcium in that same food. Mm-hmm. So that's where the challenge really lies in terms of getting enough of, of plant-sourced iron. And there's also other inhibitors of, of absorption for, for he, non-heme plant-sourced iron. The other inhibitors are things like oxalic acid, which is also found in spinach, but also other leafy greens such as chard or kale, nuts, grains, and legumes. Another inhibitor is called phytic acid, which is found in unsprouted or unfermented grains, legumes, and nuts. And phytic acid is a is an abundant secondary metabolite of, of plant foods, um, and it literally chelates iron from the intestine. So,
0: essentially preventing absorption. Is it less active when it's cooked? Or is it the same when the phytic acid is raw versus cooked? Um, I don't know if there's a difference between
2: raw or cooked. The one difference that I do know, based on the, the research that I have reviewed, is if grains or legumes are sprouted or fermented. So mm-hmm. for example, making a sourdough bread or um, you know, a sprouted grain bread, like for example, Dave's Killer Bread is one, right. is an example of a sprouted grain bread. Um, the process of sprouting, whether it 's with grains, nuts, or legumes, essentially tells the plant that oh hey you 're going to be able to pass on your DNA and um, you know the the phytic acid is a plant 's defense mechanism right it 's there to kind of irritate the gut a little bit to tell the predator hey don 't eat me, I want to continue to survive." Mm-hmm. But when you start that germination process in in the sprouting or fermenting process. Um, then that essentially tells the plant to let, da- let down its defenses and, mm-hmm. and make it, essentially what it does is it releases the minerals that have been bound by phytic acid. So mm-hmm. not only does phytic acid bind the minerals in the plant, so in the, the legumes or the, so legumes are another word for uh, beans or lentils or chickpeas mm-hmm. or things like that. Um, so they're bound within those foods, but then also they bind the minerals um, in the gut if it's in the meal as well. Mm -hmm. And one other inhibitor of plant-based iron is tannins. So tannins can be found in teas, wines, beer, chocolate, berries, legumes, nuts, and grains. And so you're probably noticing a a common theme here where the three most common um, inhibitors of plant-based iron are all found in legumes, nuts, and grains, which also happen to be kind of the, the very basis of a vegetarian diet. So I'm not saying that it's impossible to get enough iron on a plant-based diet. It just really requires a lot of mindfulness, um, meaning sprouting and soaking grains and legumes and not just mu- as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also really making sure that you're having those um, those iron enhancers in there, right? So making sure that you're using vitamin C foods on your on your food. So whether that's citrus or, you know, drinking rose hip tea or having bell peppers or strawberries or kale, those are all foods that have vitamin C in them and can enhance the absorption of that plant-based iron. And so what I often seem to notice though is that in the patients who I'm, who I'm working with who tend to have, a and, and you don't even have to be straight out vegetarian you can have animal foods in your diet but still be low in iron if you're if you're not getting enough uh getting enough heme iron rich foods because another thing that happens is especially among women there's a lot of um kind of cultural feelings around needing to eliminate red meat specifically but also animal foods in general and so um so one of the things that's that's really important is to make sure if you are eating animal foods to make sure that you that you're eating enough of them to mm-hmm. be able to get enough iron
0: and absorbing them properly.
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So considering the different inhibitors making sure to you know that that's not to say that if if you rely on legumes and and grains as your prime the primary part of your diet um, that's not to say that you don't eat them at all. it just means you know eating them and preparing them in ways that that helps helps to make them better absorbed and then um, and then making sure that you're spacing them out with with the other more mineral rich ones so mm-hmm. for example, with calcium being an inhibitor of of absorption, you know maybe not cooking cooking your spinach with cream or, right, <laughs> you right. know, or things like that not where you're going to have the calcium the, in it. Yeah. yeah, and and one thing that I will mention about the calcium is that that's more of a short-term impact uh, in the research where they're trying to figure out what the exact um, mechanism is of calcium's inhibition of iron absorption. It's not completely clear how exactly it, it prevents the absorption, but it also appears to be a short-term impact, meaning that if you eat calcium-rich foods and you eat plant-based iron-rich foods, in the long term, that doesn't seem to really affect total body iron. But in the short term specifically, if you have it in the same meal, then that can affect the, the absorption of iron. So just make sure that you're spacing out foods, um, I would say about two hours. So maybe if you really focus on getting iron-rich foods in the morning, then get, make sure you're mm-hmm. getting your calcium or zinc-rich foods in, um, you know, at lunchtime. The mm-hmm. challenge, again, happens that many foods aren't just calcium or zinc or iron. A lot of them do have many of, many of all of them.
0: So there's a rumor that you love liver. <laughs> so what's, um, you know, most of the time when I talk to patients about liver, they look at me like I've got snakes coming out of my head. Yeah. <laughs> so what's your favorite way to cook liver? I mean, we know that liver is not obviously the only way to get iron, but it is really iron rich. Mm-hmm. What do you suggest to your patients as far as liver recipes? Sure. Can I address why I love liver so much first? Of course. Absolutely. (laughs) Please tell us your love of liver. So liver
2: is, I call it nature's multivitamin. Not only is it the highest source of bioavailable heme iron, but it's also one of the highest sources of vitamin A, zinc, vitamin B12, choline, copper, folate, Mm -hmm. all of the necessary nutrients for whatever your goal is, right? Whether it's having balanced hormones, whether it's having good quality skin, all of the, you know, good gut health, detox, all of those nutrients are really important for all of that. So that's why that's why liver is one of my favorite foods because <laughs> you can get all of those nutrients in one package. But you don't have to eat a lot of it to be able to get those nutrients. One of the be- one of my favorite ways to recommend it for people especially if they're a little bit hesitant in terms of the flavor, is to first start with trying to hide it in your foods. So Mm -hmm. I recommend using a four to one ratio. So for example, if you were to be using four pounds of ground meat, you would use one pound of ground liver. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And that sounds like a lot, right? But Mm -hmm. in that case, I would say, maybe combine all of that together because liver usually comes in a one pound package. And so Mm -hmm. I would say combine all of that together, first of all, grind the liver in a, in a blender or a food processor, and then blend it with the um, with the ground meat. And then you can make things like meatballs, you can make spaghetti squash bolognese, you can make meatloaf. And the flavor is really masked, especially... Right, the
0: sauce or whatever you're cooking, that's a good right? idea.
2: And yeah. so like the bolognese is a really big favorite of mine. Um, you know, a tomato sauce, not only does that enhance yeah, our absorption, the right? right, but mm-hmm. um, however, that's not... Absolutely necessary for heme iron. Right. Um, you know, it still is a a way to mask the flavor. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, if you're doing something else, maybe not a bolognese, but maybe making a meatloaf. You know, adding things like carrots and onions and herbs mm-hmm. and different spices and um, and different things like that to to kind of distract the palate a little bit from yeah. from that flavor and. I do recommend when people are starting out to opt with chicken liver first rather than beef liver, just mm-hmm. because the flavor is a lot more mild, mm-hmm. and I would say those are some of my favorite ways to do that, so meatballs, meat patties, or, or meatloaf, um, and you can really take it in any direction you want based on the cuisine and the, and the flavor, flavor types you want to work with. Um, I also have a recipe for blueberry balsamic liver pate.
0: Isn't thats is that on your website?
2: Yes, yeah, so it's actually in a free download, and it's actually um, the download is called Top Five, oof, um, Top Five First Foods for a Nourished Baby,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and you know that was one of the first foods that I gave my son because of its nutrient density, um, and I actually would make it for him, and he would have it as a meal, but I would eat it as a dessert. It tastes so good. Um, the balsamic, the the acidity from the balsamic really cuts the the heaviness from the from the liver. The blueberries also a little bit acidic but sweet. Um, there's a, um, let's see, there's onions and cinnamon and thyme wow, and coconut oil.
0: Complex. That's
2: awesome. Yeah, I mean it's. I would say those are the main ingredients, but it's not super complex in terms of how to make it. And yeah, so, I meant more like flavor. It yeah, seems like there's yeah, a lot going on. Very. Um, i would say very unique flavor mm-hmm. and um you know but very enjoyable as well i've had patients who come in who were kind of skeptical about trying to have it and you know told me that wow i can't believe it but i actually really enjoy this and so um i can't say that about everybody who's tried it but um you know everybody has their own preferences as well and so it's it's really about finding what works for you and and not being afraid to try it, right? So I'll also share that I had been vegetarian for about seven years before um, you know, before going into nutrition school. Actually, I switched while I was in nutrition school. And um, I was also in a state of extreme iron deficiency mm-hmm. where I was exhausted, I was wiped out, I couldn't remember anything, I had horrible brain fog. And I just kind of one day just asked myself, you know, what if it's my diet? And like, what if that's what's making me feel so bad? And I kind of had to swallow my pride, especially as I was learning more about iron absorption and how the body works. And, you know, almost like taking tips from nature, like, why are there all of these inhibitors to iron absorption if there's this like really easy easily absorbed food mm-hmm. that like you don't really have to try Why am I to fighting absorb so hard. Exactly. <laughs> that was kind of what was going on in my mind. So I was like, "You know what? I'm just going to go just cold turkey, right?" And so I went one day from being vegetarian to the next day eating liver. <laughs> wow, <And> then, <laughs> that is a big jump. And well, I first started out with with making a liver pate, and it wasn't the blueberry balsamic one, but yeah, now I'm I'm finally at a point where I will saute it in butter and garlic and just eat it eat it straight. So
0: So how do you like my my patient's biggest issues? And honestly, my my own biggest issue with liver is that it is the organ that detoxifies our body. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of feel like I'm eating a garbage can. <laughs> so how how do you it, it feels like a toxic thing to be eating even though it's got all these nutrients? How do you rationalize that or explain your opinion on that to your patients?
2: Yeah. So Well, I wouldn't say it's necessarily my opinion, but we know that the body stores toxins primarily in the fat cells, Mm -hmm. right? We know that when people start losing weight and mobilizing their fat stores, all of a sudden they start feeling really bad, right? Mm -hmm. Because their livers are backed up, they're processing all of those mobilized toxins. And so, yes, the liver detoxifies toxins, but, relative to the rest of the body, I would say the fat has much more stored toxins mm-hmm. in it. In and liver. that's and that's not to say that we don't eat the fat, right, in our in our foods. It just means we get good quality animals that um, you know, that have healthier fat
0: and and less toxic lives. <laughs> and so Well, and I wonder too with the high nutrient density of liver also being a detoxifying organ, if there's something that, you know, neutralizes that in your own body. When you're eating the liver, you may be getting some of the toxins, but you're getting so many more nutrients that are necessary for detoxification Mm -hmm. that maybe it just evens out on some level.
2: Yeah, I would imagine so. And, you know, at the time an animal dies, when it's, you know, uh, humanely harvested, the, there may be some toxins left in the liver, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's, likely minuscule. Um, And like you said, comparatively to the amount of nutrients that Mm -hmm. you're going to be getting from that, your body is going to be well, much more well-equipped to, to get rid of those toxins that it's bringing in, um, rather than if it were to not have those nutrients. Yeah.
0: That's great information, Anissa. So what about some um, examples of vegetarian, uh, vegan ways to get more iron into your diet. Do you have some foods or some preparation methods that you can recommend to our listeners?
2: Though it can be difficult to get iron solely from plants, some people do choose to eat a plant-based diet, so I do still want to include the foods that they can get iron from when they're they're eating a plant-based diet. So the number one food that I recommend is spirulina. You can find it as a powder and include it in smoothies. It's a blue green algae. Um, has a little bit of a strong flavor, but when mixed into a smoothie with other ingredients, tastes totally fine. The next food I would say would be lentils. Lentils are commonly consumed in many different cultures in many different ways, but often as stews or or in stews or as a salad. Other foods would be dark leafy greens like spinach or. If you're local to the Pacific Northwest, um, especially right now in the spring season, uh, nettles are in season and nettles are a great source of plant-based iron as well as many other minerals like calcium as well. Um, and one type, maybe you could think of it as a food as medicine type of food um, would be blackstrap molasses. The w- reason why I say food is medicine is because you kind of take it like a supplement, so you pour it into, I would say, a one tablespoon spoonful, and take it by mouth. Um, you could also add it to something like oatmeal or over, or into an applesauce, or over overcooked apples would be. It would taste pretty nice that way, or with yogurt. One preparation method that you could adopt would be using a cast iron skillet to cook your food in, especially if you're using acidic foods like lemon in your foods or tomatoes that would be a wonderful way to help mobilize some of the stored iron in that in that skillet to then leach into your food and you could absorb it that way. One thing to just be mindful of is if you do have any males in the home to be mindful that they're not getting too much iron just because they don't have a way to excrete it as well as women do. A variation on the cast iron skillet would be using something like the Lucky Iron Fish, which is just a cast iron fish, (laughs) um, not an edible one, that you can put into the pot of water where you're cooking your food um, and that would also leach the iron into your water so that you would get that as a source.
0: Thank you all so much for listening today. I know there are many podcasts out there and really appreciate that you tuned in. Please let others know about this podcast if you feel like they would enjoy it. In our next episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Megan Saunders of Cascade, who offers prolo therapy and joint injections. We will be discussing the utility of these injections for regeneration and healing of joints, tendons, and muscles, as well as applications in dermatology and sexual medicine for men and women. Please visit our website at www.CascadeIntegrativeMedicine.com to learn more about our special guests today, Dr. Woodall and Anissa Woodall, as well as to learn about all of the other things that we offer as an integrative primary care medical group. All listeners of this podcast are responsible for their own medical care, treatment, and oversight. All of the content provided on this podcast is informational only and does not constitute the providing Uh, of medical advice, and it's not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Reliance on any information provided on this website or any linked websites is solely at your own risk. See you next time.